This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 527 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Ed Cressy. Now, Ed has an incredibly powerful story as a young athlete, as someone who ended up being incredibly successful in the business space. But unbeknownst to some of his colleagues, he was also battling an incredible struggle with addiction that ultimately led him both to incarceration and temporary homelessness. So we explore a host of topics from his darkest hours to his incredible journey of recovery and everything in between. Before we get to this very powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it more and more visible for others to find. And this is a free library of well over 500 episodes. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Ed Cressy. Enjoy. Ed, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Great to be here, James. Thanks for having me. And then I want to say as well, thank you to Akshay for um, connecting us. So let's start with that. Akshay Nanavati was my guest a while ago, Marine, extreme athlete, explorer. How did your paths cross? We met in prison. Really? <laughs> we, we did. We were both volunteering. We were part of uh, a remarkable group uh, called Hustle 2.0. They do entrepreneur and employment training to, uh, for incarcerated persons. So Akshay and I both found ourselves at High Desert State Prison. It's a maximum security prison in California. The men who are incarcerated in High Desert and elsewhere where I volunteered, these are men whom society has labeled some of the very worst of the very worst. These are guys who come up through street gangs, who've been convicted of violent crimes, murder in many cases. Yet these are beautiful individuals transforming their lives. They've made terrible mistakes. They're turning their lives around. Akshay and I, hopefully we helped them a little bit. And I believe I can speak for Akshay and certainly for myself. These men in High Desert State Prison and elsewhere, they helped me much, much more. They proved that Human beings are redeemable. Human beings can turn their lives around. We can learn from our mistakes, as I have certainly done. The person today who uh, might be making terrible, terribly poor choices, as, as I have done, that can be a person whom tomorrow or in the future really benefits society. It's been proven time and time again, and I'm very grateful to be here today to, to talk about it, James. Beautiful. Well, I mean, that's so important, and I've had people on for that very reason. So I had um, 
a friend of mine now. He became a friend, Tom. Um, he is the uh, superintendent or governor of Bastoy Prison in Oslo, known as one of the most humane prisons on the planet. And, you know, rather than, and some of those people, you know, it was more crimes of passion, but they did take lives, you know, and, and they are in communities, they're in houses. So they, they don't have their freedom, their freedom has been taken away, but they cook, they clean, they go to school, they work, they function like the, the you know, the, the, the men and women that we hope that they will become again. So rather than lock them in a cell for 23 hours a day, they, you know, they create this, this community because a lot of these people are going to be release one day and they're going to move back into your neighborhood again and so seeing the success with that they have such a low um recidivism rate with that system you know it's really important that we hear any programs that are working in our system whether it's completely overhauling it whether it's just programs where people like yourselves are going into prisons and mentoring and and you know making people realize yeah you know you're of course, there's ownership, but we're also a product of our environment. You can't ignore that. If you grew up, you know, in the world of gangs, that's that's your norm. That's the baseline that's been set for you. So, you know, I think it's so important to hear your perspective. Yeah, absolutely, James. You hit the you hit the nail right on the head when you you alluded to the fact that I think over ninety percent of people who are incarcerated will be released someday. Just like you say, these are individuals who are going to be living in our neighborhoods, in our cities and towns. So it's our choice as a society. We, it's not our choice whether to have uh, these individuals as our neighbors. They're going to be released and they're going to reenter society. While they are incarcerated, it's our choice as to how we want to support their successful reentry because it affects all of us. It affects them. It affects us. The, uh, you, you said you alluded to uh, something else which was uh, quite remarkable. When I went into or as I go into maximum security prisons, I meet people whom come from childhoods where they would experience things like uh, opening the front door of their home to find a neighbor bleeding to death from a stab wound right there on their front porch. When they're little kids, nine years old, you know, they would go to the street corner, be surrounded by the street gang and they're little kids and the gang offers them a choice. The choice is you can either join the gang right here and now, or you can get stomped right here and now. I myself, James, looking back, that, that was nowhere near my childhood. I had an idyllic childhood growing up in the woods of Massachusetts, Massachusetts with all my needs provided. Um, the, you know, growing, I don't know that I would have had the strength had I been surrounded by that street gang to make the right choice. Though it doesn't excuse the actions that people take. But it does put us in a position where we as society, having labeled ourselves as the land of second chances, which America is known as, are we going to embody that? Are we going to be the land of second chances? Are we going to provide people opportunities to turn their lives around? I'm very grateful that despite the fact I made a lot of poor choices, I allowed my life to, to slide into desperate, devastating drug addiction and criminality. I was given a second chance. I'm very grateful that remarkable people such as you yourself, James, such as your amazing audience, you give me the chance to tell my story and to do things to help other people too. Beautiful. Well, I think it's going to be a very powerful perspective. So let's let's start on that path. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. I was born in, uh, or I grew up in Ashburnham, Massachusetts, a wonderful, wonderful town. It's uh, the final resting place of the uh, person 
uh, believed to have fired the shot heard around the world that started the Revolutionary War. My, uh, my family, my grandfather was a cartoonist. Uh, he was an artist and he was also a cartoonist. He drew some of the first Batman comic books and he drew the very first Lone Ranger comic books. The, the point is, James, I came from a, a background where I wasn't supposed to sink into drug addiction. I wasn't supposed to end up coming to naked on the floor of a padded cell because that's where the police had, had put me for my own protection after I'd been caught breaking into my relative's home to steal for meth money, uh, meth, you know, methamphetamine, which is where I ended up. Uh, you know, going back to my childhood, my mother was a nursing instructor. She's retired now, but she taught at the college level. My father also retired. He taught at the college level. level. He taught English and creative writing. My parents inspired me to a love of reading. From a, a very early age, I, I learned to love to read. I was almost like the caricature of, of a kid. I would, I would go home from the library with a stack of books almost too high to see over. You know, I just loved immersing myself into these fantasy worlds that I found in books. It was a, it was a wonderful childhood until I got to about, uh, I don't know, uh, 12, 13 years of, of age. My my love of reading combined with the fact that I was a complete failure at sports. I, I was very uncoordinated, couldn't compete in the gym classes or, or on the athletic fields. I, I also was a very sensitive kid and I would cry quite easily when the teachers yelled or, or the, the bus driver pulled to the side of the road when the kids were getting too rowdy. James, I don't know about you, but where I went to junior high school, crying, reading, and being uncoordinated, that, that's not exactly a campaign platform upon which you're going to run for, you know, homecoming camp. <laughs> I was going to say, you're, you're not getting any votes for that. <laughs> no, I'm a no, bedwetter not... too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So you uh, you can understand that, uh, that um, you know, a lot of, I, I don't know if it's true for you, but it certainly was for me and maybe for others that uh, a lot of the negativity I felt towards myself from having been a bullied kid from not having fit in as a child, that was a negativity. That was a, a low self-esteem that I carried with me far into adulthood. One of the first ways I felt that I could be a successful person, one of the first ways I discovered to successfully interact with my peers was through drinking. Drinking, later uh, drug taking. Remember uh, the first time I got drunk, 14 years old, a wedding reception. My aunt had just gotten married. It was a beautiful ceremony. I was surrounded by loving relatives and uh, the incredible Brooklyn Botanical Gardens in New York City. The reception took place. I felt like an alien. I felt like I'd been dropped there from a spaceship. I just didn't fit in until my cousin and his friends spirited me away to uh, an empty apartment with a couple of purloined bottles of champagne, a porno movie. And as, as that champagne started going down, James, all of a sudden my jokes, they were funny. People were laughing with me. My cousin and his friend not at me. Here I am in this, uh, this, this forbidden world of, of pornography and, 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 sh and champagne. Here was all of a sudden a world where I, I felt I could understand that world. I felt like I could fit in. 
the, the me, the, the bullied Ed Cressy, that the kid who couldn't fit in, that kid was going away, at least temporarily. And that champagne, if, if people understand one thing about alcoholism and addiction, at least as, as I was taught, for, for those of us who struggle, drinking and drugs, they're not our problem. They're never our problem. They're our attempt at a solution. The insidious thing is that solution works. For uh, 23 years, I had a solution of champagne leading to vodka, leading to marijuana, leading to you, leading to uh, vast amounts of cocaine, ecstasy. Finally, for the, the last 11 years of my addiction, methamphetamine. Those solutions worked. In many, many cases, I could tamp down. I could no longer be the bullied kid afraid to stand up for himself on the playground. All of a sudden, I could be Ed Cressy, the guy who knows how to get high, the guy who knows the phone numbers to call, the guy who knows the, uh, you know, the code words to use with a drug dealer, the, the guy who's got the little bindle of, of Coke or, or speed or whatever in his pocket at, at the party, who, who knew how to take you aside into the, into the private room and, and be that special person. I was a special person in my mind. Of course, it was a false solution. I think the point is, you know, for your listeners, when you're struggling with addiction, as so many people are, you know, these days, so, so many of us are addicted to uh, drinking, drugs, working, uh, social media, wh whatever it might be. Th those things are probably not your problem. Those things are your attempt at a solution. So look at what's missing in your life what that quote unquote solution with the social media or the overeating or the workaholism, whatever it is, that's probably filling a void. And there's where your problem is. You know, you address the voids in your life and then the drinking, the social media, the workaholism, the whatever that then you don't, then you don't need it anymore. And that's your, your way to address your addictive behavior. That's what I found anyway. Yeah, well, that, that I agree 100%. So I wrote a book last year, and one of the chapters was on addiction. And, and I used an example of a good friend of mine who, the last time I saw him before he started getting sober, had told me, this is my third time going to an addiction center. If it doesn't work, I'm done. Meaning, you know, obviously, there, there was going to be a gun in the mouth at some point. Um, and what I realized when we talk about analogies in the mental health world, there's always that, oh, my cup is overflowing. Well, that doesn't work when you put addiction into the equation. So what I realized is, well, what if we flip that? What if your cup was supposed to be full? Your bucket was supposed to be full. And as you got traumas as a, a child, you know, as an adult, whatever happened, holes started appearing in the side of the bucket. And that fluid that you need starts leaking out. So now to fill it, you've got one or two choices. You've obviously got, you know, the healthy, positive outlets. You've got good food, sunshine, nature, you know, community. And that kind of plugs the holes and you're good again. Well, the alternative obviously is to throw porn, gambling, you know, infidelity, alcohol, drugs in and it fills it up. But at the same time, it's actually punching more holes into that bucket. So, you know, as you become, you know, you, you enter into the criminal world because you're feeding your addiction, you're, you're not sleeping, whatever it is, you're getting less and less healthy and you're struggling to keep that bucket full. So I think that's what, um, you know, to me is a good visualization of what addiction really is. If we can replace those negative coping mechanisms and start, start getting 
the counseling, the therapy, whatever that looks like for the individual, we can start putting the right things back in the bucket and slowly repairing some of those holes. Some of those holes will be there forever, but at least we can stem the bleeding and put people back to feeling whole with something that's nurturing rather than breaking them down. Absolutely. It's beautiful. For me, I, I think of it as the three S's, the, the letter S. The three S's for me are spirituality, self-improvement, and service to others. If whatever I'm doing in life hits one or more of those three S's, I know that in general, in general, I'm on the I'm on the right path. So, you know, spirituality that uh, I immerse myself in uh, faith-based communities, in spiritual texts from the uh, from the Hindus to the Hare Krishnas to the Hasidic Jews. You know, I just immerse myself in various forms of of spiritual beliefs, and each one I, I took a little bit from until I could construct my own form, my own brand of spirituality, which really guides me through the, the very tough times of depression or self-doubt or, uh, or negativity. And, you know, when we're, in a, 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 when we're transforming our lives, when we're filling the holes in the bucket, when we're building ourselves into a, a new bucket, in your analogy, which I love, we, we need that, that spiritual, we need that, that, um, that faith in, in doing something greater than our own selves if we're going to withstand the inevitable storms of, of self-doubt and, uh, and criticism from often well-meaning people and the setbacks we'll encounter. Spirituality is very important. Service to others. I, I'm so fortunate. I'm, I'm a person who, when I, was, uh, when I was in my meth addiction, I remember one of many times in this particular memory, I'd been, uh, I'd been stripped naked by the cops. I'd refused to cooperate with the cops after I'd been arrested, breaking into my family's home to steal for drug money. I, at the time, I was really deep into these conspiracy beliefs. I believed that the FBI had architected this vast global conspiracy targeting me specifically because I'd inadvertently befriended a 9-11 hijacker when I was kickboxing in Bangkok back in 2000. And we could go on and on, James, and we, we could take a whole show just to talk about my conspiracy beliefs. They, they were so intricate and so detailed and, and absorbed so much of my life for, for many years. The point is, when I found the strength to quit doing drugs, when I got the help I needed, now I volunteer uh, not only for the FBI, the, the very FBI who I, I so feared and mistrusted, I volunteer for the police. Police departments allow me to to come in and do uh, motivational talks to express gratitude for the work that they do, helping people like me turn our lives around. So you, you, you could say that I help the police better serve communities affected by incarceration and addiction. So much help came my way. So many amazing women and men inspired and guided me that in 2018, I was recognized by the FBI director with a community service award <laughs> for my work to reduce uh, recidivism and addiction. That the point is, by no means is Ed Cressy some great spectacular guy. Now, that's not true at all. The point is that the person you see today breaking into his or her own family's home, the person who is high on drugs, having screaming matches with people who ain't even there, because there uh, are invisible stealth bombers 
following that person, beaming the disembodied voices into the head. That, that was me. I was that person. So the, the person you, if you're a first responder, if you're, uh, if you're a, a protector, if you're a person who encounters individuals who are struggling on the streets of your town or city, people do turn their lives around. We get the help we need and we can, we can serve the society that helps us. When society gives second chances, society gets back, sometimes even more than we give. It's a beautiful message, and I'm so grateful that I've had the help to, to be here today to pass this message along. Beautiful. Well, it's, we started um, talking before we hit record, and, and it's something that's come up again and again. This isn't my phrase by any means, but I love it. When, you know, so many times you show up, whether you're wearing a uniform, whether you just see someone in public, and you're like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And what we should be asking is what happened to you? You know, whether you're homeless, whether you're, you know, a prostitute, whether you're, you know, a meth, you know, a meth addict, whatever it looks like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just, you know, why don't you just stop drinking? Why don't you just, you know, and that's, that's the thing we've got. To, if we don't peel back the, the layers of the onion and get to the nucleus of where this all started, as you said, these are simply coping mechanisms to to fill a void in someone's soul, basically. Yeah. And when you stop drinking, when, when you're drinking alcoholically, when you stop doing drugs, when you're using drugs addictively like I was, when you stop, it makes things worse, at least initially, because, again, we're using alcoholic drugs as our solution. They're not our problem. They're our attempt at a solution. So we quit and all of a sudden our solution's gone. Now, you know, now what do we do? How do we live like this? The, 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 the challenge is not to quit drinking or quit doing drugs. The, the challenge is how do you live this way? How do you find a new solution? For me, that solution is spirituality, self-improvement, and service to others. It's the, those three S's. For other people, it might be something completely different. But, you know, we, it's, when, we, when we give up our solutions, you know, we need, we need something new. We've we got we to bring something new into our lives. And, you know, I, again, for me, that, that spirituality, the self-improvement, and the service to others, these are so critical. They make it so I don't need, quote, unquote, need drugs anymore. You know, I, I think about getting high. Uh, I think about drugs, but I would never con seriously consider getting high again. It's like, uh, you know, if a doc I, I love chocolate, right? I, I love chocolate. But if a doctor told me that I would die or get very sick if I ate chocolate, I, I would still think about it. I would still think, oh, it'd be great to have, you know, chocolate ice cream or a chocolate bar or whatever. But I would never con seriously consider doing it. I would never seriously consider eating chocolate if I had received that diagnosis. With uh, with drugs, it's the same thing for me. You know, I, I think about it. Uh, you know, the I, I toy with the ideas, but I would never seriously consider getting high or going back to to drug life again, because again, I don't quote unquote need to. I have that spirituality, that that's uh, that life of self improvement and being of service to others. Beautiful. Well, just before, I, I want to touch on something that you brought up in your early life. But before we do, I, and I can't remember if I asked you this when we spoke before. Have you ever heard of Wayne Dyer? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, I've heard of him. Yeah. So not many people have. And it, it's amazing that, that many people, but you talk about pulling pulling all the good out of all the different religions. That's where I'm at, too. And I have to say, Wayne Dyer, the universe, God put him in front of me prior to my divorce and really gave me the tools. So when that shit storm hit me. Um, you know, I, I was able to kind of really start navigating it. But if people aren't 
a fan of one particular doctrine, I think someone like Wayne or Deepak Chopra or some of these that that pull the wisdom not only from the religions, but from, you know, ancient Greece and some of these other great minds. And as you said, I I think that's a beautiful concept. Build your own version of spirituality. It's okay to have a little a little Christianity, a little Islam, a little Judaism, whatever whatever you resonate with, and you create your own because we're not all the same. Absolutely. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. You every when when we're along a spiritual path, at least I've found, it's like assembling that jigsaw puzzle. Every conversation we have with a spiritual practitioner, every book we read, every podcast we listen to, every TED talk we watch gives us one more little piece of that puzzle. We might get it from a Muslim person. We might get it from someone who's of the Christian faith. We might get it from someone who practices her own brand of spirituality. We keep getting these little pieces. No, no one conversation, no one interaction is going to give us the whole puzzle. And sometimes when you're assembling a jigsaw puzzle, you know, you get a corner piece. You're, you're so happy because, oh, yeah, that corner <laughs> piece, the edge piece, yeah, <laughs> the anchor. And sometimes you just get a little piece of blue sky or, or green grass. Yet the more, we go, the more we pursue a spiritual path, the more pieces of that puzzle we get. There's a, there's a quote I like from uh, C.S. Lewis. The author C.S. Lewis. Yeah, Narnia. Yeah, yeah, and he, he says that uh, a person to, to speak of a person searching for God is like speaking of a mouse searching for the cat, <laughs> right? So all we really have to, like, you know, all the mouse has to do is go out out there and run around on the floor, and the cat will find it. I, I believe when we're spiritual practitioners, all we need to do is put ourselves out there, be open to new ideas, remain not non-judgmental. Uh, be meditative, be questioning, be curious, and, and quote-unquote God, the divine mother, the, the creator, the source of all that is, whatever name we want to use, that, uh, that universal spirit will find us. Absolutely. Well, I want to get to you know your journey to addiction and out the other side, but before we do, just one thing. The same guy I was talking about, Chad, when, I, when, we, when we chatted, we did a couple of uh, interviews he talked about a book that really helped him. It was called The Introvert's Edge. And what was funny is I posted, you know, the web, the, the interview and I have the webpage and I quote the books that people recommend. And that author actually reached out to me. So he came on the show, which was really cool. Um, and it was fascinating because we don't realize of the social pressures that we're exposed, you know, basically we're, we're expected to be the life of the party, the, the, the hilarious one, the charming one, you know, and obviously that's completely unrealistic. We are who we are. But he had a great way of describing if you were an introvert or not. And then you can use that as a tool, you know, to understand your own behavior in a social setting. But he said, if you, it's fine if you could be comfortable in crowds. That's not about being an introvert. It's where you get your energy from. And this is very much me. I love going to, you know, concerts, crowds, whatever, but I, at the end of it, I want to go and just chill. I want to be with my wife. I want to, you know, read, whatever. That's how I level up. That's how I power up. The extrovert is the one that gains power from crowds. And that's a beautiful thing too. But I think a lot more of us are introverts than we realize. And so, you know, with that, with that lens, do you feel that that was kind of, in a way, your childhood trauma was you had these expectations in your mind that I should be popular, funny, you know, charming, 
but I'm not. And, and there was that internal struggle of what's wrong with me, which is not what's wrong with you. You're just a different type, personality type. Absolutely. Yeah. I, when people treated me poorly, I resented them. When people treated me well, I resented them even more <laughs> because I knew the real me. And if you treated me well, then I assume you were either stupid or out to get me or had some ulterior motive or, or something. So I, I knew that deep inside I was the resentful person. I was the judgmental person. I was the person who would lie, who would steal, who uh, could not uh, rein myself in when it came to consuming drugs or food or, or any number of hedonistic pursuits. The, um, the, I, you know, I, I, I knew myself internally and, and I just kind of assumed everybody else knew me too. And since, since the, the me that I knew it was real, looking back, I realized that that was just kind of a component of me. It, it wasn't the, the entire me, but, uh, I, you know, I, I just had so much negativity about myself and I projected it onto the rest of the world to tamp down that. And that was my problem. But my problem was that I, I hated myself. And part of the reason I hated myself was I'd always had, had a dream to become an author. I always wanted to be a writer. I was, you know, that kid with the stacks of books coming home from the library. I wanted one of those books to be my book. I, I never had the discipline. I never had the belief in myself. I never had the courage or the perseverance to pursue my dream. That was another reason I hated myself. So I was a negative person with judgments about the world. I, I, at the same time, I failed to, to really make myself into a positive person, one who pursued his dream. All of that mixed with, uh, mixed with some other things led to my making a lot of poor choices that, that, that led to, you know, where they led. I, uh, I remember one time I was staying in a homeless shelter and there was a, uh, there was this big room. It was an outdoor room where you could go to smoke. And there was uh, this enterprising guy who would sell cigarettes for a quarter. I had three, I had 75 cents in my pocket. I gave him a quarter. As I was smoking my cigarette, it occurred to me that I had just spent one third of my entire net worth on a single cigarette. <laughs> right? Because that, that was all I, I had. Uh, and, and, you know, what, one thing, when we look back upon the paths we've taken, I, I realize now that because I got to a point where I had almost nothing left of a material nature, I had only spirituality to turn to. The, I think the lesson perhaps for others is you don't have to allow yourself to sink to the point of being in a homeless shelter. So spending a third of your net worth on a cigarette. And, and in fact, especially these days with fentanyl and with the uh, opioid epidemic, I, I'm very lucky. I, you know, by, by, by uh, one could make the argument that I shouldn't even be sitting here today. I should be dead or, uh, or locked up or I or have gone into long-term homelessness or the psychosis, the conspiracy beliefs, the psychosis I experienced should you, you could argue should have been much worse to, to the point where I couldn't come back to serve society and improve myself. You, uh, you, the listener, you, the audience, if you're struggling or you know someone who is, 
most importantly, never give up hope. Never give up hope. Like we were saying, the most devastating cases of drug addiction as as mine, you know, there there are worse, you, you could say there are worse cases than mine, but but my case of addiction was very bad. My circumstances, my poor decisions leading to my circumstances were extremely challenging. Yet thanks to a lot of help, I turned my life around. The other part of that is don't don't wait to get where I got. Don't wait until you're in a homeless shelter or coming to naked on the floor of, of a padded cell because the police who were trying to protect you from yourself, uh, you, you gave, gave them no other choice. D- don't, you know, don't allow you. I, I never thought that I, when I was uh, that kid at my aunt's wedding reception, I, I never thought that a glass of champagne would lead to me stealing from those same relatives who were out at the wedding reception. I, I never thought when I was in college scoring my my quarter gram of cocaine that it would lead to me toting a loaded 357 pistol everywhere I went because my meth addiction had got so bad I, I thought the FBI was following me um, and and from there going to jail because of course I got busted with, with that 357 uh, you know I, I never thought that I would end up where I, I thought you know, it happens to other people those kinds of things happen to people who, who make poor decisions than I. It, it doesn't happen. But it all it all happened to me. So, you know, for you, um, I, I remember going to one of the times I went to rehab. A good friend of mine had been recognized by Major League Baseball as the league's most valuable player. All right, so this guy was at the very top of the very top. He, he not only played Major League Baseball, but he was the MVP in, in all of baseball. And this guy, he was right there in rehab in some some crummy bed, uh, in some crummy. Well, I shouldn't say it was a great rehab with wonderful people, but you know he he had allowed his life to, to deteriorate uh, the same as as I had. The uh, addiction strikes to everyone. It does not discriminate. It doesn't care addiction if you're uh, from Park Avenue or the park bench. It doesn't care if you're in the state pen or Penn State. You know, uh, it doesn't care if you're uh, playing on NBA hardwood or, or doing hard time. Addiction strikes strikes everyone. It can happen to you, and I don't mean that as a threat. I mean that and, and as, as a way to encourage you to have compassion for yourself. If you're struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with opioids or meth or uh, social media or any form of addiction, it's not because you're a loser. It's not because you're an idiot or a junkie. It's not even because you're an addict. You're a person who's struggling with addiction. You're a person who maybe, like me, made some poor decisions. Recognize that. Recognize the, the good in yourself. Recognize that there is so much help out there. These days, more and more, the help is uh, in various forms by many, many people. You can get help. You can turn your life around. You don't have to live as an addicted person. You don't have to, to live with your poor mistakes destroying you and those around you. You, you can turn. You might have made some poor choices. Many of us have. You can turn your past into a beautiful, amazing future. You can turn the dark midnight the uh, the terrifying storms, uh, midnight storms of addiction into a beautiful sunrise of a new future. Many people have done it. I've done it. You can do it too. Beautiful. Well, thank you for that perspective. Now, um, you know, it's funny because when when I've got to hear all these stories, you know, you break down. You mentioned about the socioeconomic scale. It doesn't matter, and they're they're 
are very, very common denominators with childhood trauma, you know, with organizational stress, with sleep deprivation. So there's so many compounding factors. And yeah, no one is safe. You know, obviously cocaine, the barrier to entry was the price. And it was a kind of wealthy person's drug until crack cocaine came around. And then voila, congratulations, poor people, you get to be addicts too. So yeah, I mean, you know, understanding that none of us are infallible, you know, and it's about addressing the trauma that's inside us, whatever that looks like, whether you, I just, I just interviewed a, a, an incredible woman who was in Auschwitz and survived. That's trauma. But I've had people on here that were the middle child that felt unloved. That's trauma. So it doesn't matter what it looks like. You were bullied as a, a 13 year old bookworm, you know, understanding that that has, has an impact. And that whatever we reach to, and I think social media and, and overtime in my profession is another unhealthy coping mechanism. The people that work and work and work and work, um, you know, understanding that we're trying to, to put up a wall between the things that we really have to face if we're going we're gonna to grow from it. We're putting up a wall. Yes, absolutely. And I think if you, uh, if you take it to even another level, we use these things to avoid our own mortality. We uh, all, all of us are here on this earth for a limited time. Most of us are going to be here for years and decades. But, you know, at most we have, what, 80, 90, 100 years. Someday our journey on this earth will end. It's not a reason to be morbid. For me, it's, uh, it's a reason to put aside the addictive behaviors, to put aside the distractions, which unfortunately a lot of us use things like uh, working. I know I do working, uh, other forms of, of activities as distractions. It's a chance to say, hey, you know, let, let's, let's be realistic. My life on this earth will end. What do I want to look back upon? And even, you know, even if you don't choose not to believe in the spiritual, even if you don't believe in an afterlife, that, that's fine. You may be right. You may be absolutely right. There is no afterlife. I, I don't know. I've never been there uh, or know anybody that has. Um, whereas I choose to believe in an afterlife. If, if you choose not to, that's fine too. But you know, what do you want to look back upon at the at the end of your life? And the, the woman from the concentration camp, uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm, I'm going to listen to that interview uh, because the insight she has, uh, I'm sure, you know, I, I've learned so much from people like uh, Primo Levi, who wrote a remarkable book called The Truce. He wrote a couple of books, but he was in a concentration camp. Uh, certainly Anne Frank, her, her remarkable writing. There, there are so many women and men who've lived lives of incredible suffering, unimaginable trauma, yet who, who've overcome. And these uh, th these are individuals who give me so much inspiration. Uh, you know, I read Nelson Mandela's book a, a couple of times. P people who've endured far worse than Ed Cressy has ever endured. If, if you're struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with mental health challenges, if you're struggling with uh, any number of things, and certainly in this day and age, many of us are struggling, there are incredible, inspiring stories. James, you have many such stories on your show. There are so many books, uh, so many resources out there. Read the stories of people who've overcome their obstacles. Read the stories of people, listen to the stories of people who've, who've taken on tremendous challenges and triumphed, certainly in service to others. And, and these, they will get you through. It won't happen, you know, it won't happen today or tomorrow, probably. It won't happen next week, but bit by bit, story by story, lesson by lesson, you can live your best life too. That's what I've learned. That's what many others have learned. And, and all of us, you know, we share our stories. Beautiful. I agree 100%. You can see the bookshelf behind me. It's uh, quite full. <laughs> and a lot of those people that have the same kind of story. Um, all right. Well, then 
Let's go through your career path. So starting at the school age, what were you dreaming of becoming as a child? An author. Always wanted to be an author. Always wanted to write a book. I was see those my desires initially were selfish. My desires were to be the person at the Manhattan uh, bookstores, you know, with a, a line around the block, people waiting to get my autograph. I wanted to be Fred Easton Ellis. I wanted to be Tom Janowitz. I wanted to be, uh, you know, one of these writers who had some runaway bestseller. I, I wanted the accolades. I wanted the, uh, I, I didn't realize, as I realize now, that being an author is, uh, is about the creative journey. Being an author is about the journey of self-expression. Being an author is about the exploration of oneself in service to the reader. When, when I was a kid, I just wanted to have a book that got made into a movie and, uh, you know, uh, uh, snort cocaine, uh, uh, you know, in, uh, in a waterbed with, uh, with lingerie models. <laughs> and that, that's what I, that, that's what that's I most wanted. teenage boys, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, you know what I, I guess, you know, I never became an author because it, most importantly, because I lacked the discipline, the confidence, the belief in myself. Looking back to, I also wanted it for the wrong reasons. When I had a, a story to tell, when, when I put myself through the, through the challenging circumstances, when I harmed other people through my poor decisions and certainly harmed myself, when remarkable people helped me get, uh, helped me turn my life around, then I realized at some level, okay, now I have a story to write. I have a story that I want you to hear. Not only do I want to write it, I want you to hear it because I think it can add value to your life. Not not value along the lines of Primo Levi or uh, or Mary Carr or some of the other, uh, certainly not. It, it, you know, my, my story may not be up there with, with some of the greats uh, of literature and, and of writing, but I'm, I'm offering my little bit to the world. And that, that's a really fulfilling thing that, uh, you know, if you're looking for a way to, to overcome addiction or to give your life meaning, writing, telling your story, expressing yourself in a way where you use what you've overcome as inspiration to others. You know, we, we don't want pity. P pity is, you know, we don't necessarily want people feeling sorry for us because that really doesn't do us much good and it doesn't do them very much good. Uh, what we want is our story to inspire others. We want others to, to look at how we've addressed our obstacles and how we're overcoming our challenges. You know, for example, um, the 9-11 20th anniversary is coming up. This will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. I could go out and say, well, you know, I harbored all these conspiracy beliefs. My friend Tariq, uh, who I knew in Bangkok, and as a result, I, I underwent incredible depression. And, you know, even to this day, I will still find myself harboring beliefs about the government monitoring me. The, the story, I mean, that's all true. The, the story is... I'm able to examine my depression that, that I struggled with and say, well, you know what? My depression, it had a purpose. My depression prevented me from getting too immersed in my conspiracy beliefs, you know, because I would do things like watch 9-11 documentaries, 9-11 conspiracy YouTube. And, that, you know, nothing against uh, people who believe in conspiracies. But, you know, for me, when I would when I would allow myself to get immersed in conspiracy beliefs, it would lead to that depression. So that depression had a purpose. Now I say that I can I can put forth my stories that depression being a warning sign, and by telling my story in that positive, what I hope is an inspirational way, now it lifts me out of my depression.
I can say my cons- I can look back and say, well, even my conspiracy beliefs had a purpose because they I was able to transform them into a means of motivation to realize that my purpose in life is not to unveil any sort of conspiracy that I used to believe in. My my purpose in life is not to prove or disprove that my friend Tariq was or wasn't uh, a person who had anything to do with 9-11. Those things are beside the point. My my point is to do what others before me have done and to show how it's possible to overcome even these challenges like depression, like conspiracy beliefs, like addiction. Beautiful. Well, speaking of 9-11 documentaries, I had uh, Jules and Gédéon Naudet, the two French brothers that made the one documentary on 9-11 that had a lot of the footage from inside and the second plane hitting. Um, I highly recommend anyone listening listening to that because it's not about conspiracies. It's just about the firefighters, the civilians, you know, everything, whatever the motivation behind it, the politics, whatever, it was the actual event. But they were also, they did a beautiful one on the, the Paris attacks, a heartbreakingly beautiful one, and then the Notre Dame fire as well. So they've made some really, of the documentary world, they make incredible documentaries. So that's one you know, for, for, I think there's a good choice if we're going to choose a 9-11 documentary that's not swaying, you know, a particular way. Um, so, but anyway, so back to your journey. Um, you've walked me through getting to San Francisco because what I saw in myself, I was discounted from a lot of cool professions after being told I was colorblind as a kid. And it made me very, very wayward for a long time because I wanted to be a firefighter. And so I fumbled around life, you know, and, and was very kind of, I would say at times even probably depressed. Um, and, you know, then everything came together and I ended up challenging the vision test and became a firefighter. But um, I felt that kind of loss of direction. So, you know, walk me through a young man that wanted to be an author, couldn't be an author, and, and what that journey took you and how it, how it, how it brought you to San Francisco. Oh, San Francisco is just having come from the small town like I came from a place. I don't know if I mentioned before, it's called Ashburnham uh, in Massachusetts. Beautiful place. Wonderful people. Just a, a fantastic, just a fantastic, fantastic place. I want none of it. <laughs> now, when I was 13, 14, you know, a, an angry teenager uh, locked into or as I saw it, locked into the small town existence, I went to San Francisco and a whole world opened up, just a whole world of, of freedom, a world where I could I could be myself, a world where I could uh, see and do things that I'd never experienced before. Drinking was just a, a vital part of it, vital from my perspective. I think when you look at addiction, alcoholism, you know, look at what you associate your addictive behavior with. So for me. Those early first stirrings of freedom, even the the wedding reception in New York, but much more, even much more so, is those those first days in San Francisco. Those feelings of freedom, the uh, the feel, the first time uh, kissing a girl, the, the being a part of a, a group of peers who accepted me. Th- those were what mattered most to me. Those feelings, those experiences. At the same time, all of that was happening. I was drinking. I was drinking the whole time. I made that very strong association between feelings of social acceptance and feelings of being intoxicated. Proved very hard to break. Almost, I, I mean, I took it almost to the point of death or long-term incarceration or homelessness before I could break those associations. So it's, so it's positive reinforcement, basically. 
It was a form of positive reinforcement. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, San Francisco is an incredible place. I mean, just uh, it's changed a lot. The people who I met there, some of my closest friends in the world, the the natural beauty, the um, the the di- the diversity. I became. I met uh, some of my closest friends are are gay. Uh, I had come in from a small town. I never experienced the LGBTQ community in, in San Francisco. Fortunately, I had the chance to uh, meet remarkable individuals from all kinds of different communities. It's just a uh, you know, it was just, uh, it's the feel, you know, it's, it's, I think it's never the place. It's, it's more the feelings we associate with the place. And certainly the, the natural beauty and, and the people lent, at least in my case in San Francisco, they, the, the people and the beauty lent themselves to those feelings of freedom. Unfortunately, or, you know, maybe you could say fortunately, because I, of the lessons I learned, there was the, uh, that bottle of Royal Gate vodka <laughs> that went along right with those feelings and that, that led to the coke and the, uh, and the meth and the rest of it. So with with the career ladder, though, you found yourself working in a pretty prestigious um, position. So to, to walk me through how you found yourself in Silicon Valley. Yeah, a couple. I worked for Stanford University, uh, considered by many the finest, one of the finest, if not the finest institutes, institutions of higher learning. I think the career you mentioned was with Genentech. That's a biotech firm that was named the number one best company in America to work for by Fortune magazine. I worked at Genentech five, almost you know, five and a half years. They treated me very well. They sent me overseas to, uh, to business trips to Europe. They uh, gave me stock options. They gave me promotions, responsibility. All along, I was a drug addict or I was, I was addicted to drugs. I was a person who was addicted to, to methamphetamine. The, uh, you know, life, life for many of us who struggle with addiction, it can be like a seesaw. On the one hand, on the one side of that seesaw, we have things like the career. We have uh, things like the kickboxing. When I was working with Genentech almost the entire time, I was doing a lot of kickboxing or for, for much of the time I was training kickboxing to be an amateur fighter. We have these things. And a lot of the, the psychology behind it, James, is that we're, we're putting on a facade when, when we're struggling with addiction we are, are saying to ourselves, we're saying to the world, mostly we're saying to ourselves, hey, you know what? I work at Genentech. I'm a, an amateur kickboxer. Addicted people don't do these things. People who are addicted to drugs don't become professionals with Genentech or, or amateur kickboxers. Therefore, I must not be addicted. It's a lie, looking back. It, it's a way of, of trying to convince the world and trying to convince ourselves. It becomes that seesaw because on the, for me it was, because on the other side, counterbalance to the career and the rest of it, every weekend I was binging on methamphetamine. Every you, weekend. Sorry, mate, just quickly. How did you find your way into meth? You talked about alcohol, you talked about coke. Where, where was that um, kind of transfer to that particular drug? Meth makes you feel incredible. It's like being uh, just a superstar. And by no means do I encourage anyone to try methamphetamine because the, uh, the, it, it's, the, the negative effects of meth far, far outweigh the, the positive. But from the limited perspective that I had as a person who tried meth for the first time when I was 19 or however old I was, it just makes you, it makes you, all, all your problems go away. 
you know, temporarily, then the problems ultimately get far, far worse. Uh, to this day, I, I've, I left meth behind 14 years ago. Uh, I, I still will hear disembodied voices. You know, I've, I've learned to, to believe these disembodied voices I hear are angels or, or something positive in my life. I still harbor uh, beliefs about the government having some interest in my life. The, the methamphetamine, the paranoia, the psychosis it led to, I, it will probably never go away. I, I'm stuck with this my entire life. I, I accept it it's because of my poor choices. The point is, when I say meth makes you feel incredible, don't take that as a reason to do meth. Because I, I would, if I could go back, I, I would never have got mixed up with meth in, in the first place. Meth was the way for me to get there as quickly as I could. And there is getting out of myself. Meth was a way I could, as quickly as possible, no longer be Ed Cressy. Meth would, as fast as any, faster than anything else, meth got me to the point where I wasn't that bullied kid on the playground. I wasn't that person who failed to become an author. I was no longer the lying, thieving, resentful, judgmental person. All of a sudden, I was some superstar in my mind, in my meth, uh, my meth addicted mind. You oftentimes when we're struggling with addiction, alcoholism, we find whatever substance gets us there the fastest, gets us out of ourselves the fastest, solves our problem the fastest. The problem is, and it's a serious problem, is usually that substance also destroys us the fastest. I, I lived as a person addicted to meth for 11 years. Um, I, I could do it because for a number of reasons, you know, I was always into working out always into kickboxing, bicycling, going to the gym until the final, as you would say, four years of meth when, when none of that mattered anymore. And, and all I could do is smoke cigarettes and do meth. The um, oftentimes we as addicted people, we gravitate towards whatever is going to destroy us the fastest. For, for me, that happened to be meth. A, a lot of the, the feeling like a super person, the, the great feelings of meth, as the years went by and in the final four and a half years of my my psychosis, my hearing the voices, my believing in the FBI conspiracies, I, I needed meth just to get to a, a normal baseline. And for me, that normal baseline was this terribly twisted conspiracy believing, hunted by the government. Uh, my family and friends turned against me, completely removed from society person who was just a drain on the court system, a drain on the police, a threat to myself and others. I was never a violent criminal, just, for, you know, for various reasons. But I, I toted that loaded 357 almost everywhere I went. And, and I'm thanks to God, uh, I'm very fortunate that that 357 that I carried around didn't cause me or or or, or worse, some innocent person a great deal of harm. I, I remember... I, uh, I used to sit outside in broad daylight outside of my studio apartment with a shotgun. I had this 12 gauge shotgun and I would sit out there on my, with that shotgun on my, and this was in San Francisco. This wasn't out in the woods on some mountainside. This was in the urban area of San Francisco and I would sit on that milk crate with my shotgun. So I believe they were coming to get me and, and I had to scare them off. I used to come to in the mornings with that 12 gauge shotgun resting on my chest. It's cold barrel pressed against my skin because that's how I passed out the night before waiting for the FBI or the gangsters sent by the FBI to, to kick down my door and drag me away and, and torture me to death. 
that that was my life. And I'm just, you know, I'm so fortunate that I was able to, to turn that around. I think I totally got away from your question. No, no, no. That's what I love about organic conversations. I got a couple of questions just so that we can frame, you know, the, the spiral down was at its peak in San Francisco. What was the salary? What salary were you making? That's a good question. I, yeah, I don't remember. Uh, I, I mean, it was, a good, it was a good salary. It was a salary I spent almost entirely on drugs uh, and the drug lifestyle, you know, the bars and the, uh, the whatever. I, I was getting a lot of stock options from, uh, from Genentech. My, uh, you know, my, I come from a, I'm a privileged, uh, I'm a privileged white guy. You know, let's face it, I come from a society gave me a lot of unfair advantages because of my socioeconomic background, because of the color of my skin which is white for, for people who aren't seeing this on video. So I, yeah, I don't know. I, I, what I can say is the salary was, was very generous and it was a good enough. It was a, it was a good decent salary. Yeah. Okay. Beautiful. So then another kind of tangent before we go into, to, you know, your darkest times, one thing that has really been glaring again with all these stories with my career. I mean, obviously as firefighters and paramedics, we, we get to see behind the curtain, whatever facade society is given, the first responders of the world see through a completely different lens. And um, people listening have heard the story, but I need to tell you, you know, give you the preface. So my family moved to Portugal um, about t- almost 20 years ago. And when I started this podcast, my mom said, hey, did you know that they decriminalized addiction here, drugs? And I was like, no, I had no idea. So fast forward a couple of years, I ended up going to Lisbon when I was visiting my family and actually sat down with the guy who spearheaded this whole initiative. They had an inter- a terrible um, addiction problem after one of the conflicts in Africa. A lot of their soldiers came back with um, opioid addiction. And they tried the way that we do it, just lock them all up, you know. And, and luckily, even though Portugal's kind of looked down on in, you know, in some European countries, they had the humility to go, this isn't fucking working. And so they got together, both political parties. Of course, there was some resistance by some. But they ended up decriminalizing addiction. They still arrest pushers. They still arrest smugglers. But the addicts get funneled into mental health counseling. They get funneled into, you know, um, addiction counseling, job creation, education. Uh, and then the, the ones that still can't kick it are, are given safe injection sites. So they can have medically, you know, um, prescribed opiates. So they're not going to overdose. They take their, you know, whatever, and then they leave and go function. The removing the stigma, removing the fear of arrest, removing all the barriers to getting help, they found a huge percentage of addicts ultimately sought the help that they needed. To, through my eyes in England, Australia, America, what prevents a lot of people getting from help is that they're worried about getting arrested. You know, they're worried about that record, you know, stopping them ever be able to get, you know, keep their job, get a job, whatever it is. So with you being in San Francisco, which is a, you know, more progressive environment, um, depending on how you look at it, um, and having the funds, what was your barrier to seeking help? Did you find any, any kind of organic easy avenues to battle addiction? Or did you find yourself in that same stigma of, the the shame behind it stopping you actually be able to find help. Absolutely, the stigma prevented me from getting help. I remember one night, clear as day. It was uh, I, I, it was a, like a Tuesday night, and uh, I was high on cocaine. I'd, I'd been doing coke all night. 
I was knew I was going to call in sick to work the next day, like I'd done so many times in the past. And I remember thinking, you know, wouldn't it be terrible? Wouldn't it be a nightmare if I ended up having to go to AA? <laughs> there I was. There I was having spent a week's paycheck on cocaine, which I'd done on a single Tuesday night worried about going to AA because of the stigma. It was, it was The stigma prevented me from getting the help I needed. Also, there were other factors, too. There was my, my egotism, my belief that I wasn't a person who could suffer from something that I couldn't fix myself. Meaning, you know, anything I needed to do, I, I could I could do myself. I didn't need help. There was, the, you know, every so many mornings. I, I remember I lived in this apartment that had one of those, you know, the trash chutes where, where you're, you're in your apartment, you open up a little metal door and then you, you put the trash in and you hear it shoot down into the into the into the can in the in the, uh, in the basement. So I remember every. I remember so many, you know, Sunday mornings taking my cigarettes and, and my, uh, and, and, you know, my baggies of Coke that either, you know, they were empty or I, maybe I'd even flushed out my, flushed my Coke down the toilet. So many times putting that stuff in the trash chute, closing the chute saying, that's it. You know, I'm never, I'm never going to do it again. And do you know where the following Wednesday found me, James? Right, right back at it. Um, so I think it was the, the, the belief that, you know, when I when I closed the door of that trash chute after after my paraphernalia and my cigarettes went down, I think I just believed in myself as, as being able to to have uh, to have made a decision, believing in myself to that I could implement my decision without help, which which wasn't true. I needed help, but I was didn't get it again because of that stigma. I think the the resources were always there. You know, nothing, very little changed between that. Tuesday night with the cocaine or those Sunday mornings at the trash chute. Very little change between then and 2007 when I did get help, except for the facts that in 2007 when I quit meth, there were no no other options. I mean, there were, there were other options. In 2007, my options were I could have gotten locked up, covered up, like six feet of earth covered up or, or sobered up. Th those are my options. Along with the stigma, it was the fact that, that I always had these other options. And, and I'm not suggesting that if, if you or, or someone who, who struggles with addiction, I'm not suggesting that that person's option should be taken away. I'm saying in my life, you know, I ran out of uh, other things I could do. It was either, I mean, I could have been a long term, gone into long term homelessness. Um, but, but aside from, aside from that, there was really no other choice but, but to get. To get clean, to get sober. Now, with the psychosis, just as a tangent again, you know, you you have cocaine. Now you have crystal meth. You know, obviously both are stimulants. Um, were you sleeping much during you know your binges that you were going through? No, because no, and I no. Go ahead. No, no, please carry on first. No, I said, you know, I think yeah, the, the psychosis probably is a result of not sleeping as much as it is from the meth itself, or you know. A, I think a lot of uh, a lot of the psychosis comes from the the lack of the sleep, at least in my case. So no, I, I wouldn't sleep. I, I would go. I, I think the the most I ever did was maybe five days without sleep. But you hear about people going going far longer. The uh, 
and you know, when I did sleep, I, the first thing I would think of when I woke up in the morning was, do I have any meth? You know, that was the, the first thought on my mind. Where, where's the meth? Did, did I leave any from last night? There's, uh, um, yeah, I needed, I needed the meth just to feel, just to get to that base of, of normality. The, the psychosis, I would, the, the disembodied voices used to threaten me that, you know, if I didn't, if I didn't quit doing meth, that terrible things would happen. So sometimes, you know, I would believe these conspiracies. I, I would definitely, I would hear the disembodied voices and, and they would tell me different things. And in one scenario, these disembodied voices had been sent by some, uh, some rehab that my parents had hired and the cops were in on it and the disembodied voices would, would threaten me and tell me if I didn't quit meth, these terrible things would happen. So what I did was I would do more meth because in my mind, I was some heroic figure who was resisting the disembodied voices. And, and I thought, okay, well, I'll do, I'll do meth. And that way other people won't have these disembodied voices uh, put, put upon them. These are the twisted realities I, I would create. It was the, the reason I didn't get help along with the stigma, along with the egotism were you know, I, I would create these twisted realities where these stories I would tell myself that it was, uh, you know, I needed to quit doing, to, I needed to keep doing drugs. I, there, there are a lot of reasons, you know, I think it, it boils down to the, the drugs are our solution. It goes right back to that. You know, the problems of, uh, the problems that would come with, with getting, with quitting drugs. Had I quit drugs back then, I would have had to face up to some very harsh realities. The harsh realities being I'd, I'd never pursued my dream of being an author that, uh, you know, my, my relationships, whatever else was going on in my life, I, I wasn't prepared to face up to the nightmare of conspiracy theories and psychosis and being addicted to meth. Hey, that was something at least I could handle. I, I wasn't happy. And as you know, James, human beings were really not geared or, uh, or, or programmed to happiness. We're programmed for comfort. We, whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, as long as we're alive, our, our brains and our subconscious kind of wants us to stay in those circumstances. We don't, our subconscious, our brains don't want us to, to change because with change comes the risk. So, you know, if we change something, yeah, we might be happy, but our, our core, our primal desires are, are to just remain alive. The, uh, the, the analogy I like to use is the, if you think of our ancestors way back in prehistoric days, our prehistoric ancestors who were afraid to leave the cave at night, those are the ones who survived, who, who passed along. They might not have been happy in that cave, but they stayed there and they survived. Whereas our prehistoric ancestors who left the cave in the middle of the night, they were the ones who got eaten by the tigers or fell off the cliffs and, and died. And, you know, today the, our, uh, our prehistoric, what, what kept us alive, now it results in things like neuroses and anxiety and things that keep us up in the middle of the night with our, our minds racing. It boils down to, I think, the fact that human beings, we're, we're, we're programmed to remain in circumstances in which we're alive, even if we're not happy. So we're in, in circumstances of extreme addiction, we, we want to stay there because the, the change where it might lead to us feeling better will also take us out of something that's guaranteed to keep it, to keep us alive. So I guess, you know, I, I knew every day 
that I could survive as, as someone addicted to meth. I knew that was survivable. Hey, I've done it, you know, for years in a row. Every day I've been uh, addicted to meth and I know I can survive. But being a person who quits meth, who gets the help I need, I had no idea that I could survive that. And that was just, that was a scary thing. Yeah, that's a really powerful perspective. With the sleep, just as a tangent, um, that, the reason I asked that, because I figured that was probably going to be the case and that a lot of the audience listening, they work shift work. And I truly believe that a sleep deprivation, addiction aside, you know, mandated shifts that we work um, is behind a lot of our mental health, anxiety, depression, suicide that we see in our professions as long as as well as the uh, the other diseases, heart disease and cancer and all those. And I think it's a very powerful insight. Of course, you're putting, you know, a stimulant into your body, but ultimately you are not sleeping. And there are people here, whether they're working, you know, understaffed fire departments, whether on strike teams in the wildland that aren't sleeping for days on end. And, you know, that's your psychosis that you got is, is very parallel to, I think, some of the the mental health issues that first responders face as well. So it's kind of an interesting dichotomy from from two different roads. Now with um with the San Francisco um before we go into, you know, your your upswing, I took an Uber the other day with my wife who went out for dinner and there's an older gentleman who was our Uber driver and he was uh you know he was from San Francisco and and he said something to me that really resonated and it was funny because we chatted he, he got us to our destination. We chatted for a while to the point where Uber was like, are you okay? Do you need us to call 911? <laughs> like, no, we're just talking, mate. Calm your tits. But, um, but no, but he said, you know, the, the, um, the rent is so expensive. That's why there's more homelessness. And I'd never thought of that. But when you think of the worst homeless problems, it's in very, very expensive cities, New York, LA, DC, San Francisco. So, to be homeless here in Ocala, Florida, you have to be very, very, very poor because, you know, rent and, and housing, if you live in a trailer or whatever, you know, you can get it for very, very low. What point did you find yourself homeless? I mean, you know, what? Because I can imagine if you don't have in, in San Francisco $1,500 a month, $2,000 a month, you're probably going to find yourself homeless in an expensive city like that. Yep. If you don't have the resources, yeah, if you don't have people you can turn to. I, I was homeless myself for a very brief time. I spent a few nights here and there in homeless shelters or, or sleeping outside. I was not a long-term un unhoused person. I always had places I could go, people who I could turn to for, for money, for for what I needed. The the, the challenge, you know, it's so challenging to be homeless from, from my very brief experience, yet more so what I've seen of others. Just just the challenge to make it through the course of a day, to stay safe, to have one's belongings uh, safe and not stolen, to shower, to get food. Never mind dealing with the mental health challenges or the addiction or alcohol challenges you might have just to, to get through all of that. It is so difficult that the idea of getting a job or finding a, a place to live, it, it almost seems uh, so daunting as to be impossible. The, um, the, the good news is there's, there's a lot of help out there. There are, and I think the help, the help that comes to homeless people comes from individuals. There are, you know, there are organizations, there are nonprofits, there are government entities. It's always that 
it's often that one-on-one, the individual who's who's a first responder, the individual who's part of a government agency, the individual who volunteers for a nonprofit. For those individuals, if you're one who, who if you're listening right now, first of all, thank you. You, you've, of all the lives you've turned around, if you volunteer, if you help the homeless in in any capacity, there's so much gratitude out there for you. You will not always, and in fact, not often, hear the message of gratitude. The people you help, if you're a volunteer or a first responder or, or work with a government entity, the people you help, we don't know who you are or we can't or won't approach you for whatever reason. Still, we're grateful to you. You, through small or large acts of kindness, through the way you've dedicated your career or your volunteer efforts or your lives to helping people like me, we are very, very grateful to you. You don't, you won't meet us, you won't hear from us directly, but you know, on behalf of so many homeless persons and so many people, who've overcome addiction and incarceration, who you've helped turn turn li- our, our lives around. I'm, I'm here to say thank you. And there's, uh, you know, your work is very powerful. Your work is incredibly meaningful. Your work has, has kept people like me alive. And, you know, you continue to do so every day. So thank you. Yeah, and I've had, you know, so many people on here. Judge Craig Mitchell just had, who's a, a, a judge in L.A., and took it upon himself to start a running club. And he had, you know, addicts, homeless men and women who ultimately ended up racing around the world with him. You know, I mean, and there's another guy who was uh, um, incarcerated himself, was an addict himself, and now he feeds the homeless on Skid Row. You know, so there's so many beautiful humans, which is so sad because we don't see them on TV ever. Um, all right, well, then getting to your metamorphosis. So tell me physically, because you've, you've obviously talked about the conspiracy and the mental lows that you had. But, you know, tell me physically, you went from a fit, kickboxing, Silicon Valley biotech, you know, guru, as it were, to to where physically before you, you finally hit that low? Physically, yeah, I went to smoking cigarettes. You know, I don't know how many cigarettes I would smoke. I would uh, I would go without, eat. you know, I remember eating uh, one time I got to the point where all I had to eat was a box of sugar. So I, I was spooning sugar out of the box to, to eat. The uh, I remember going unshower. I, I wouldn't shower or, or brush my teeth for months. There, there was one point. The uh, I, I was fortunate that I I never got really sick. I was never hospitalized. I was locked up in a, a psychiatric institution for a brief while. That that was more due to my my poor choices not to. Uh, not to cooperate with law enforcement when, uh, when looking back, uh, you know, I should have been grateful to them. The, uh, so, you know, physically I, I, I was fortunate. I think, you know, what, what kind of saved me again was I, I used to work out all the time. I would, uh, I would try to balance my, my binge drinking and my binge drug using with, uh, with fitness. So I, I would for much for most of my life, I would eat pretty well and I would work out, when I was deep in my addiction, though, it was, you know, the McDonald's dollar meal. I remember, you know, breakfast was the, the dollar sausage biscuit and the lunch was the or dinner was the dollar uh, McDonald's cheeseburger. The uh, when I, my teeth, uh, I remember I, I lost my front tooth. So I was going around with no front tooth, but there, my teeth were black. 
it, they were not all black, but I, you know, I had like black spots on, on my teeth. The, uh, yeah, so my health, my, my, I, I never had any devastating, uh, health problems like a lot of people do, but I, I was certainly on my way there. I, had I gone a, you know, probably not that much longer, either, either some accident would have happened or my health would have begun to rapidly deteriorate. I, I did get clean too when I was relatively young. I was thir- 37 when I put drugs behind me for good. So, you know, youthfulness probably helped a lot, but there, there wasn't, you know, the path I was on was not, uh, my, my options were, there was no, you know, there was really, it got to a point where there was no hope of, of really anything good happening. There were, you know, the best I could hope for was things not to get devastatingly worse. The best I could hope for was not to get thrown in jail or prison or, or have some catastrophic health, uh, or, or injury or to be attacked or the, the best I could hope for was from one day to the next to not have anything terrible happen. There, there was no hope of, of really anything good happening to me anymore back in 2000 when I got clean. So let's talk about that. So tell me about that pivot. What, what changed? What was different that day? What was, yeah, I, I think it was, uh, I, you know, God, I, I, be, I was shown a spiritual path. I got, because of that, that, beginnings of faith in, in in a spiritual presence in my life that along with incredible women and men who inspired me I had the motivation to start working very very hard I worked incredibly hard I got uh, I started going to 12-step meetings two three four sometimes five 12-step meetings every day I got a job in a Christmas tree lot because I, I got clean in uh, in October in 2007 so here was a guy who had worked at Stanford University, who had worked at Genentech, the best firm in America to work for. Here I am slinging Christmas trees up onto my shoulder and tying them to the tops of people's cars with twine for, for tips. Uh, I worked on a UPS truck delivering holiday packages. I, uh, I remember going to the computer. There was an employment center. It was a, a California-sponsored free a place where you could use computers for free and just banging out my resume and, and uh, going on Craigslist looking for jobs. I started working at fitness. I, I kind of transformed my addiction to drugs into an addiction for fitness. I would go to yoga classes, two, three, sometimes two or three a day, 90 minute yoga classes. Or I would run. I would run for an hour and then I would be an hour away from home, so I would have to run back. Of course, you know, I, I would end up injuring myself or get burned out, so I couldn't run anymore. Just, you know, very, very hard work, incredible people. And it was the inspiration. You know, one, one can work hard. One needs the inspiration. The, uh, you know, I, I was undergoing terrible, terrible depression. I, I Suicidal depression. I would fantasize about taking my three fifty seven pistol and putting it in my mouth and yanking the trigger. Or going out to the the Golden Gate Bridge, which was maybe an hour's walk from where I lived, and you know, just waving goodbye to the cruel world, the, the glittering lights of San Francisco, or the, the silhouetted city against the the backdrop, and just taking that that uh, long flight to the bottom of the sea. You know, I would I would fantasize about these things. Women and men believed in me. That the people I would encounter when when they saw the work I was doing. They would believe in me, and their belief in me inspired me to work even harder. I worked at becoming an author. I, I got this old uh, 
Apple, remember those turquoise uh, clamshell laptops they have? Yeah. The, those old Apple laptops. I got one of those, and I would take it with me on the, on the shuttle to my temp job. And I would have that, and I would write screenplays or, or short stories or, or journaling. And I would do that every day. I dedicated myself to, to pursuing that dream of becoming an author. It was that, that hard work to really apply myself. I guess when I saw, and this does not mean to suggest you should, anybody should, should get to that rock bottom before you start turning your lives around. You know, take, don't, don't wait till you get Look to the, for the, signs. the flop, yeah, don't, <laughs> don't get to the flop house hotel, not showered in, in months, uh, urinating in the sink life that, that I got to, to turn your life around before then, but work, you know, just work very, very hard. I, when, when you work, you know, when, when we pursue our dreams, when we work very hard, the, the universe responds. The universe sends incredible people our way. I remember one of my med- my first ever meditation teacher, the guy who got me into the, the meditation practice, which I continue to this day. He imparted upon me certain beliefs about suicide. My meditation teacher convinced me that suicide results in regression backwards through many lifetimes. I didn't even want to relive this life much less go backwards through many lives. And that, James, that's the only reason I didn't kill myself. I didn't kill myself, not not because I wanted to live. I didn't take my life because I didn't want to regress backwards. Now, if I had read what my meditation teacher taught me in a book, or if I had heard it on a podcast, or uh, or if I had you know seen it on YouTube, I, where I was at the time, I might have said, ah, you know, whatever, maybe that. But because my meditation teacher, because of the individual he was, because he inspired me, because he, he took me into his life, I adopted his beliefs about suicide into my heart. And I lived a life that, that espoused those beliefs, meaning I came to I came to believe in an afterlife that would be much, much worse than my life here on earth if I were to kill myself. That, that's the only reason I didn't kill myself. The point is when we work hard, when we apply ourselves to following our dreams, when we apply ourselves to life transformation, the, the universe sends us forms of help. That form of help that I received in my meditation teacher came as a result of, of my of, of my hard work. My meditation teacher wasn't going out and getting a Christmas tree and saying, oh, hey, Ed, hey, that great tie-down job with that tree on the top of my car, come to my meditation class. That that didn't happen. There's not a one-for-one. One. It's a, a subtle spiritual way that the universe has of sending the help we need when we apply ourselves. That That's what I learned, and that's what got me to the point of not only having quit doing drugs, but having achieved my dream of being an author Having uh, been able to volunteer as I as I do to this day for the FBI, helping them better serve communities affected by addiction, that that's what led to me having uh, published some articles in the Washington Post to inspire others to overcome their addiction. These are not the results of Ed Cressy being some great guy or some talented individual. These are the results of remarkable women and men who came into my life who helped me. Because uh, I, I think because I started doing the hard work and uh, the hard work led to the inspiration and the inspiration led to more hard work. Beautiful. And I think that's it, you know, with, with this conversation. And it's, it's the same no matter what you're talking about, addiction, obesity, you know, all these things. 
you have two elements. You have ownership of the individual, them finally be able to take hold of their own path, but you have the environment as well. And if we create an environment that makes it easier for people to take control of their own path, for example, in my personal opinion, decriminalization of addiction so that addicts aren't scared of getting help um, and we're not filling prisons full of people that, you know, had a bag of weed in their bag, in their pocket, um, then, you know, you force multiply the ability to take control of yourself. If we don't have a community where the gyms are closed and the fast food stays open during a pandemic, then we, you know, we, we allow people to have more opportunity to take control of their health versus the you know the opposite so you know to me what i see over and over again when people don't find solutions is because they clamp onto one of those two things and argue with the other one instead of understanding that both of those things are paramount to actually creating you know the the solution to to pulling most we'll never get all of them but pulling most people out of addiction obesity whatever the issue is and bringing them back to as close to a physically and mentally well person as we can possibly get. Absolutely. Magnificent. Yes. When, when we give second chances, we get as much as we give, if not more so. Those women and men whom I mentioned who helped me, they have in me a, uh, a, a friend for, you know, a friend doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of, of the relationships I have with these people. Uh, the women and men who helped me, they've, they received a chance and they took that chance to really put some good into the world. And the more good that we put out there, the more good that comes back to us, the more ripples of positive energy and goodwill we put out, the more those ripples bounce back to improve our own lives. Well, just one thing, and I want to get to to the book. Um, but again, I've been educated the last five years. Uh, you mentioned the Golden Gate Bridge. I've had um, Kevin, who was the, the they call the angel of the Golden Gate, the the um, CHP officer that would patrol. Kevin Bothia, who was um, with Kevin in an iconic photo where he's talking him back over the railing. I had Kevin Hines, who survived actually jumping. So, you know, I mean, those are three of, of so many people. But there again is a common denominator between the guests, all the guests who either were about to take their own life or even actually, you know, initiated it. And, and thank God they survived. But the feeling that contradicts what so many people think, that suicide is cowardice. And they had not only obviously they want to escape their pain, but a feeling of being a burden. So in their broken brain, in that psychosis that you've talked about, they basically reported that if they took themselves from this life, their family's life would be better. They were a burden to their family, burden to their friends. And obviously the complete opposite is the truth in a, in a healthy mind, but that's how distorted their wiring was in their brain. When you were having these suicidal ideations, was there an element of that in your thoughts as well? When I was having the suicidal thoughts, I, I just wanted it to end. I wanted the depression to end. I, I wanted it to be over. I, I looked back on the poor choices I made, the, what I'd thrown away, my, my house, my dog. Um, I, I just felt so miserable. I would believe that the, the government had identified me as this special person, uh, a top secret undercover agent. And the, the planes I saw and the things I saw, initially they were very terrifying. After I quit meth, they kind of transformed into these beliefs that the government had 
selected me as some top secret special person. And if I could just say or do the right things, the government would reveal itself. And of course, when that didn't happen, because it can't happen because there's no government, I mean, there's a government, but not the government I believed in. Then I felt myself an abject, utter failure. I think I was just, I, I didn't really think about other people being better off without me. I thought of, uh, I was just more, my, my thoughts were more selfish that I just didn't want it anymore. I, I didn't want the depression. I didn't want the, I just felt so terrible. Um, I I just believed there was no end there was no way it was going to get better, that depression would never go away, which I believe is a hallmark of depression. It, it convinces us that it, life will never change. Um, I didn't, I never took, uh, I never took medication. I never took any psychiatric medication, not, not just for me personally, it was never the right choice and not, you know, for others, uh, that, that's, that's the choice of others. So I never had, you know, I never had that. I, I pursued a path of meditation path of um, a fitness path of nutrition again the three s's the spirituality the service to others and uh, the self-improvement so I think those things that the path I chose was a difficult path the, the path I chose was very challenging fortunately the path I chose also had been walked by remarkable women and men who shared their stories the th that was what was going on with, with my suicidal thoughts. I, I believed, you know, number one, that life would just never get any better. Uh, but I couldn't kill myself because of my beliefs in the afterlife. So I chose this. If I'm, I figured if I'm going to stay alive, I'm, I might as I'm going to choose this difficult path and meditation and, uh, and spirituality, which ended up to be so rewarding as to, uh, be almost beyond description. Yeah. Well, it just reminds me of someone, um, I had, I can't remember which person it was now, but someone on the show, um, I think it might have been John Gord, who was very, very, very obese. And he said, at one point, I had a realization that it was harder being fat than it was the effort it took to get fit. And I thought that was profound. And I'm sure it's the same in the mm. addiction. You, you're scared of the work, but I'm sure it's harder, way harder being an addict than it is putting the work, you know, finally to, to facing what, you know, made you an addict. It's it's yeah it's a means of it's a process of facing up to some very tough realities. At, at its core is uh, mortality, the 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 knowledge that I always had and maybe you know most if not all of us we we have this knowledge like we were saying earlier that our lives upon this earth they may they may go on for years and decades but someday our time on this earth will end and we need to deal with that at some point. But uh, yeah, I like what the you know I like that it was harder to be overweight than it was to, yeah, you know, I guess I got to that point. I, I got to that point where, again, it was getting locked up, covered up, or sobered up. I had to get to the place where my options for staying on meth were worse than the hard work it would take to not use meth anymore or other drugs. Absolutely. Well, I want to kind of get to one more point because I know we're, we're running short of time now. So you finally did become an author. So yes. tell me about that and tell me if there was a level of catharsis when you were finally able to put your story on paper. Oh, I, absolutely. I, you know, I started, uh, I, I wrote thousands and thousands of pages. And finally, I, I got the opportunity to, uh, I, I started, I'd done a lot of work in uh, criminal justice reform and began volunteering in, inside of prisons 
and, uh, and, and jails, helping others turn their lives around. On, on one of the volunteer, the organizations I worked for had a lot of support. One, one supporter was, was this guy, this incredible individual, Seth Godin. Are you familiar with him? I, I am because I believe he's friends with Tim Ferriss. So I think I've heard him on his show before. Okay. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Seth, uh, he's written a lot of books, done some remarkable work, and I got a chance to meet him. Seth and I had a, a conversation. I don't know. It might have been five minutes. I don't even remember what he said, <laughs> but it was like he, he planted a seed in my mind. The, the very next day after I talked to Seth Godin on that, uh, we were on a Silicon Valley tour. We met with people like Sheryl Sandberg and, uh, and Mark Wiener, who's the, uh, who's the CEO of LinkedIn. Uh, the, the day after I talked to Seth Godin, I started writing a book. I wrote uh, 26 drafts, 26 drafts. Now, not every draft was beginning to end. You know, some I just kind of went through and, and, and combed uh, and made improvements here and there. But I really applied myself to writing this book, to, to telling my story. The, the reader, the book is called My Addiction and Recovery. So I'm sure you can guess what it's about. <laughs> it's, you know, as best it can, as best I could the, uh, with this book, the reader gets a sense of what are the root causes of addiction. The reader gets uh, understanding of when, you know, you're walking down the city street or in the street of your town, and you see a homeless person or, or a person in psychosis addicted to drugs. And you wonder in your mind, how did this person get there? When you read my book, hopefully you get some answers. You get uh, you get a sense, you get taken to what it's like to be in the depths of psychosis. You get a sense of, of the horror and the just uh, nightmarish circumstances of conspiracy beliefs and uh, other forms of, of psychosis. Most importantly, you get inspiration. You get inspiration that transformation is possible. You get belief in the power of second chances. You see how a life, mind, is transformed from devastating addiction to community service. You understand how it's possible to have once been arrested by the FBI, like, like I was, to being recognized by the FBI director with a community service award, as I was also fortunate enough to, to have uh, accomplished thanks to a lot of help. The book, uh, My Addiction and Recovery, our, our main focus now is to donate it to prisons. It's currently been accepted by both the state of California and Massachusetts. So in both California and Massachusetts, my book is now either in or on its way into all or, or most prisons in the systems, into libraries and programs. So incarcerated people will have it as a resource, as an additional resource to turn their lives around. My book's uh, being considered by New York, by Maine. I'm in the process of reaching out. I reach out to Florida. Uh, my goal is to get my book into every correctional facility in the United States so that every incarcerated person should she or he choose will have my book as an additional resource of inspiration to, to turn their life around. Um, hopefully, and it, it's, it's looking good, uh, I'll be going in, I will personally be going into prisons in Massachusetts to facilitate uh, book club discussions or lead a program to help people uh, overcome substance abuse and mental health challenges. That, that's something that's in the works right now. And uh, it's just a remarkable way of of looking back upon my life as having abandoned my dream or, or not having had the, 
the discipline or the, the belief myself to even pursue my dream, to have accomplished my dream, more importantly, doing so in service to others, the way so many incredible people have shared their stories and, and contributed to the world in ways that have allowed me to turn my life around and escape some devastatingly challenging circumstances. Beautiful. Well, another state I would definitely try and approach is Oregon. I've had a couple of uh, guys from the prison systems there on here, and they're very progressive in, in the way they think. So they're they're trying to adopt some of the Norwegian models there. So I would definitely try and penetrate that state as well. They should be very receptive. Fantastic. I will. Yeah, Oregon. Absolutely. Thank you. Beautiful. Well, I want to let you go. So now we're pretty much running out of time. So where, where can people find the book? And then are there any places online that they can learn more about you or reach out to you specifically? You, uh, th thank you so much. You can find the book on Amazon or wherever books are sold. You can uh, go to my website, www.authoredcressy. So www.authoredcressy. My name, Ed Cressy, is uh, relatively unique, so you can absolutely find me on Facebook. If you or someone you love is struggling with addiction and I can help, please don't hesitate to reach out. I will, uh, I will help you as best I can. Beautiful. Well, Ed, again, like I say to so many people that come on and tell courageous stories like you have, thank you. I understand, you know, there's an element of dragging you through some of the old trauma, you know, and that has a cost. Um, but the power of storytelling, the power of transparency and, you know, and, and showing people that regardless of salary, skin color, sexual orientation, that we all travel this same journey. Um, is so, so empowerful and so, so inspiring. So I just want to say thank you so much for taking well over an hour and a half to tell your story today. Uh, thank you, James. You know, the, uh, the challenge, like we were saying, the challenge is not to, to quit drugs. The challenge is to lead a meaningful life. The opportunity you provide me to share my story, hopefully it helps at least one of your listeners, if not more, uh, that allows me to lead that meaningful life. Thank you. Thank you.